0: Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. It's it's a joy to be here in Stuart's stead this morning to to preach the word with you and if you were at our congregational meeting last uh, week you you may have heard it's been five years. This June was five years for me to of being your worship pastor, and I was uh, uh, very blessed to kind of just realize that as we were at the meeting. And and then on Monday they gave me this new uh, gold jacket. No, they didn't. I bought this. <laughs> not not to mark that occasion either. It's just like I've been I'm going to have to preach more this summer, and I need something besides the gray one I always wear. Uh, so this is not a gift from anybody. This is a twenty dollar jacket from China on Amazon. So there you go. Um. And so we're back in the Psalms this morning and our grab bag approach has been a lot of fun. We we each each week the preacher just picks a psalm. We we kind of go through it, we pray about it and we find one that we we think might be uh edifying to to you guys and then they end up being very edifying to us as we prepare and then we share with you. And so that's what we're going to do again this week. Uh, this week I I picked Psalm 24. So so that's where we'll be. But before we go any further, I want to pray for us once again this morning. So bow your heads with me. Father, your, your word always reminds us just how great you are and how lowly we are. And, and yet, we see your grace to us throughout it. And so as we open the scriptures again today, help us to see the king of glory in a new way. The one who is also called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins. In his great name we pray. Amen. So if you would, uh, if you have a Bible, open it with me to Psalm 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the ends of your rows under chairs sometimes. Um, Sometimes they clean the floors, so they're not there. Um, But the words will, of course, also be on the the screen, and you're free to follow along with us. I'm going to read the entire psalm, and then we will begin to unpack it together. So this is Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it. is the king of the glory. Selah. The word of the Lord this morning to us. So this psalm has a somewhat unique composition that that you may have noticed. There are three sections. Uh, Last time I preached, uh, I mentioned that those are sometimes called strobes. We can also call them stanzas or just sections. That's how the Hebrews organize their poetry, very much like we do, but they don't have to be the same length. They don't have to cover a, a similar rhyming scheme or anything like that. And that is on display again. So we have three stroves this morning. And, and you may know, uh, you may have noticed, these three stroves don't seem to relate to one another that much. We have a, a two-verse strophe and then a, a, a strophe of four, and then another strophe of four. And each time, kind of the, the topic is, is shifting and changing. And uh, as such, this has been called a, a coronation psalm, as some commentators focus on the last four verses, the king of glory. Um, because that's representative of of this idea of coronating or crowning a king. Others think that this psalm is fitted for some sort of liturgical uh, occasion, perhaps one that celebrates the way that David brought the Ark into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And that would explain the interest in God's presence in the second section, verses 3 through 6, who can stand in God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, carried God's presence, his physical presence, a manifestation of that in the people of Israel. Uh, and then, of course, the, the address to the gates to let the king of glory in. If the Ark of the Covenant is standing before the gates of the city, then that's a, a possible way that that could be remembering or commemorating such an event. So we're going to peel back the curtain and, and, and look at some of that. And we're, but first, we've, we've got to take each piece one by one. So we're going to look at the first strophe, which is comprised of two verses. So verse 1, it says, The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. So, so this isn't a question. This is, this is a a declaration. But if we kind of rhetorically rephrase this as a question, it says, who, who possesses the world and, and everything that's in it? The Lord. The Lord does. This represents David's sort of opening salvo in his psalm about the King of Glory. He says right off the bat, where, where, where do you live? And we're like, uh, modern readers would go, uh, Tom, Tomball, Texas? No, 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 zoom out. Okay, uh, United States. Zoom out. North America. Oh, the, oh, the planet. Yes, I live on Earth. And he was like, yeah, that's mine. That's mine. You and everything in it. And so, so we get the idea that, that, that David's opening phrase is one of, of declaring the majesty of God. And that continues in verse two. Four, because, right? for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We need to think back to Genesis 1 here. Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10 says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So land stretched out over the seas that thing that you live on, that thing that you take for granted that's always going to keep you from sinking into the ocean, God made that. God established that. Terra firma, dry land. I don't know if you've ever been on rough seas uh, or seen treacherous water of maybe a river flowing rapidly. I think all of us have experienced flooding here in Houston. We can recognize that water can be devastating. Um, And water is so often called the building blocks of life by secular scientists. But yet throughout our history and throughout biblical history, the sea has been seen as monstrous, just a a dangerous force of nature. The the Bible has numerous references to this, uh, and and it also has numerous references to God's dominion over it. So Job 9.8 says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Psalm 89.9, You rule the raging sea, when its rave waves rise, you still them. Of course, we can immediately think of the, the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calming the storm. And then, of course, Jeremiah 5.22. Who could forget Jeremiah 5.22? I didn't know it. Um, but this is incredible. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar they cannot pass over it. So me, being a huge nerd, I can't help but, but think of the movie Interstellar. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's several years old, so spoilers. Um, there's a scene where a group of astronauts land on this very alien world um, with no dry land at all. Instead, it's just seemingly very shallow water about two, two and a half feet deep. And they're, they're kind of milling around and they see mountains off in the distance. And they're like, oh man, I wish we could have landed there. And then they suddenly realize that the mountains are growing and it's a mile-high tidal wave approaching them. So they're standing in the, the calm before the storm and this wall of water is fast approaching and there is no dry land to run to. There's nothing. They just have to get on their ship and go. won't tell you how it turns out for them. But it's a powerful, albeit completely fictional, um, sequence illustrating the absolute terror that bodies of water can inflict on our frail forms, anything that we build, anything that we make. The only thing that can stop it is land. And God goes, yeah, I made that. I made that so that I could stop that, so that you could live on it. So this is, again, I called it an opening salvo, but this really is a big statement by David as he begins to talk about the king of glory. He is the king of glory. Just look at what he made. We're not even looking at the vastness that is the moon, the stars, everything in it, the galaxies that God has made, we're just saying, he made land. How amazing is that? So, you can summarize this section with a simple idea, like, that God is so sovereign over all creation, even the chaotic waters of the sea. And then we move to a new section. So, so section two begins at verse three, and it begins arguably what's the most familiar section of, of the psalm. Uh And, uh, I say most familiar. If you are a 90s kid growing up on contemporary worship, you may have even said, Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. That's, that's his. Turner's like, Yeah, I did. Turner's a 90s kid like me. Uh, but I sang that, cutting my teeth on worship, like as a 15 year old all the time, and eventually realized just in my quiet time, Oh, that came, I thought Charlie Hall just made that up. You know, like, no, it came from this song. Uh, and so the, the earth is the Lord and everything that is in it is, is our, is our first, is our first Section, but here we begin to see a new question and answer structure emerge in the, in the second strophe, and so verse three says, "Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place?" So here is the question: Who, who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? That's, that, that's the first question, and so we we need to take a step back and, and just ask ourselves, well, "What's what's the hill of the Lord? What what is this hill?" And so Psalm Psalm 2, another psalm helps us do that. Psalm 2, verse 6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so what's Zion? Well, the prophet Joel helps us there. Joel 2, 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So Zion, we've often heard Mount Zion described as the city of David or the temple mount. And as the temple has sort of been destroyed and rebuilt and moved uh, over the course of history. There's actually been a couple of Mount Zions, but in this time frame, this is the city of David. Mount Zion, David knows, is where he's establishing the city of Jerusalem, and there's no temple yet. David is, is is not the one who gets to build it. That's Solomon, as we'll see. But David is talking about the hill of the Lord, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, knowing full well that that is where the temple will one day be. So there's this understanding that Mount Zion is the hill of the Lord, and then he says, so who who can stand here? Who can stand in his holy place? And the holy place has to be another name for the tabernacle. In David's time, there's still no permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's presence. We we, we talked about that earlier. But, but ultimately, the, the, the tabernacle itself was placed on Mount Zion, which would be the future site of Solomon's temple, David's son Solomon, who would be the one to build it. So there are some commentators that believe this psalm might be that composition, like we talked about, the composition of, okay, let's commemorate this, that, that the ark is coming in, it's being established on Mount Zion, and one day the temple will be established there. And the, so this, this whole activity about the king of glory coming in is a commemoration of the ark of the covenant coming into Israel for the for the first time under the Davidic kingdom. But we'll return to that idea later, because verse 4 then gives us an answer to that question. Verse 4 gives us our first answer in our question-and-answer format that we're seeing in the second section. He says, So who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is where anyone who grew up singing the 90s songs has to remember clean hands, right? Because that's, that's Let us not lift our soul to another. Um, and, and so obviously, clean hands, pure hearts, language. Josh gets demerits for not playing that song, by the way. Just, just kidding, he doesn't. Uh, washing hands was a ritual act of purity. We have to understand that, that washing hands predates germ theory by quite a long time. We wash hands now because we know, like, oh, that gets you sick. You need to wash hands to keep your hands clean. But, but Jews, and, and really people of all ancient religions, cleansed hands as part of a ritual purity. And, and we as Christians, of course, know uh, that this was not limited to Christianity because we see the scene in the crucifixion where Pontius Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of this man's death. I don't want any part of it. I'm pure in this. Don't blame me for this. Uh, And and of course, we recognize that that's an outward action. That's an external action of, of purity. Pilate washing his hands physically does nothing to absolve him of guilt of letting that happen. It is his job to decide whether or not this man should be crucified, and he sort of abdicates it. So he tries to go, I'm cleaning my hands." So. Cleaning hands, external purity, supposedly reflective of internal purity, but not, obviously not always the case. And just to help drive that point home a little bit more, my kids, when they were younger, they would sometimes sneak out of their rooms in the wee small hours of the morning while their mother and I still slept. I don't know if you've experienced this. Or while I'm taking a shower, getting ready to go to work. And one time, I had gotten out of the shower, you know, it was probably 7.15 or so. And my two older ones are in their bathroom. Their bathroom's clear across the house. And they're there w- along with Ella, who is our, our third child, who's about three now, but she was probably about two when this happened. Um, and, and Ella had taken off all her clothes except her diaper and was sitting in the sink covered in soap. Not water, just soap. And I was like, awesome. And one child uh, had clearly disobeyed. That, that was Ella. She was in the sink covered in soap. But there was an older sister... Who had soap all over her hands. And then there was an older brother jumping up and down laughing. He had clean hands. He had not participated directly. His hands were clean, except he was jumping up and down laughing, egging them on. And, and so, he and I had to have a conversation about the heart. It was easy to talk to Kinsley and Ella. They were, they stood guilty. But, but Liam kind of was like, why, why am I getting in trouble? They did it. I just watched it happen. I was like, well, you didn't get me you were laughing, you were jumping up and down. So where was your heart? You had clean hands, but did you have a a pure heart? So, So we have to recognize the distinction here between the external cleansing and the internal one, which is why David doesn't just say he who has clean hands and use it as a metaphor for all cleanliness. He's talking specifically about external action and internal moral purity. So, as such, a pure heart described here in the verse has to imply a moral uprightness that comes from being a true worshiper. Who can ascend the hill? Somebody who is morally righteous and who is not sinning indeed. And so, clean hands and a pure heart, right action, right motive. We can see this at, uh, if we look at Second Samuel chapter 6. We, we, we can see how sometimes it looks like we have both of those things, but really we have neither. Which is scary to think about. Second Samuel chapter six tells the story of the ark coming back to the Lord. Now, I will go ahead and say I'm, I'm referencing this story a lot. We don't know for certain that that's what this psalm is about, but it does line up really well. So we're going to keep coming back to it because it it does give us a window into what David's talking about, even if it's not exactly what David's talking about. This is a key part of David's life, and so this is the Israelites bringing the ark back to. Jerusalem. And David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark, meaning ahead of it. Uh, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, and castanets and cymbals. It's got to be really cool sounding. And and when they came to the threshing floor, Nacon of Nikon, Uzzah put his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So many of you may have encountered this story before, and you just go, what was the big deal about that? He was just trying to keep the ark from falling over. Why is he dead now? And and so it looks like that's pure heart. I don't want the ark to be defiled and fall. You know, he is the one that that was specifically chosen by the king to lead this ark into Jerusalem. So, like, he must have had clean hands. You know, he must have been an upright man in, in action. So, why, when he reaches out and touches it to steady it, does God strike him dead? And that's where we have to go, okay, well, let's actually examine what's happening here. Let's remember how the ark of the covenant is supposed to be treated. So, number one, right out of the gate, this ark is on an ox cart, is that the way the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be carried around? You may remember from reading the Pentateuch that there were poles that slid through the Ark. Four men, not two, in a cart were supposed to carry it. And, and, and who were these guys supposed to be? Levites. We are pretty certain from other texts in Second Samuel that neither Ahio or Uzzah were Levites. They were Korites. And in all of that, they were never supposed to touch the Ark itself. So, there's tons of disobedience happening. And we're like, well, yeah, there might have been disobedience happening, but like, his heart was right. To which we go, was it? Was his heart right? Because Uzzah, Uzzah touching it is what finally breaks the camel's back. Not all the other stuff that happens, but Uzzah actually reaching out and touching it. And, and here's the chief sin that Uzzah committed. Uzzah believed that his hand was cleaner than the mud. He presumed that the ark falling onto the earth was more offensive to God than his unclean hand was touching it. The appearance of right action and right motive give way to an understanding of the purity that God expects and the impurity of man as he is. So, sidebar, set 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 that aside for now, and and let's go back to the text because because we have to we have to keep moving through here to see see how this all ends up. So so we know. Don't lift up your soul to an idol. Don't swear by what is false. Don't lift up your soul to what is false. And, and, and here we do have to understand the word false. The, the what is false phrase is a, is a Hebrew word shav. And depending on the context, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean wor- worthlessness, falsehood, ruin, vanity, and emptiness. And so ESV translators here are kind of dynamically going, this is swearing by what is what is false. Uh, But one commentator translates it as emptiness, and I I really loved his reasoning, um, because his, his reasoning is that emptiness here is a moral, relational, and religious category, and it denotes things with no moral, relational, or religious substance. So gods other than Yahweh, right, these graven images that are forbidden in the Ten Commandments, are empty because there's no substance equivalent to their outward impressiveness. They are empty, they are what is false, or as the King James says, they are vanity, uh, and, and we get that. I, idols are are like cookie jars with no cookies in them. They're deceitful because they're empty. They're not fulfilling the glorious promise of oatmeal chocolate chip or whatever your favorite flavor is. If it's not oatmeal chocolate chip, we can, you can see me after the service. And, and speaking of, of deceitfulness, David continues in his answer that, that the one who can enter the Lord's holy place does not swear deceitfully. And... And this extends back to expressions of action. So we've kind of seen it it bump into expressions of the heart, and now it's bumping back out to more right action. Swear deceitfully, in this case, is swearing oaths in order to achieve a deceptive end, uh, in order to cheat, in order to defraud. So we've we've seen how David is linking action and heart. Clean hands and pure heart are intrinsically linked together. So, So true worshipers, by definition, do not worship false idols and do not bear false witness they are true worshipers and then in verse 5 he continues by extolling what the blessings will be he says he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation so blessing characteristically refers to God's involvement in the everyday you know everyday occurrences of life making it fruitful that's the kind of blessing that's that's in view here we might also use the word prosperity if we weren't so triggered by prosperity when we talk about it and, and, and the word righteousness here could also be translated as faithfulness, as the Lord will deal with him faithfully as the God of his salvation. So that's, that's what he means when he says those things. But so, so who is this he that we keep talking about? Is it, is it, is it David? Is it David himself? Who, who is this man with clean hands? Is it just a hypothetical righteous person? Well, obviously, in the context of how David is writing, it, it has to be the latter. Dave, David himself, Uh, uh, is not preaching a prosperity gospel Uh, if you obey God and you have a a pure heart and you'll you'll prosper. He's not saying that. Verses like this get used for that, but it's not this quid pro quo sort of idea. If I do this, God will always do that. First of all, we know that verse 4 is impossible to achieve at all times. Who has clean hands and a pure heart at all times? Even David himself knew this, regularly confessing his own sin before the Lord. David uttered the phrase, I have sinned, three times in 2 Samuel alone, twice in 1 Chronicles and once in Psalm 51. So David is very much acutely aware that he is himself a sinner. And David, David's faith in the God of his salvation meant a blessing of his house, still, even, even in his sinfulness, as long as he purified himself and repented of his sins. So the same is here. Dave, David's making it known that this is open to all of Israel, and we know that given the next verse, because he says, such is the generation of those who seek him. So it moves from a singular subject, he will do this, he will be that, to such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If there is a pure generation, it would be because they seek him. This erases any idea of false humility, of only external actions, because any idea of being those with only clean hands and not pure hearts can't happen. But it also shows the spiritual sense behind this message, because there is no generation who is wholly pure. And that's where we kind of come up against this psalm as New Testament Christians, and we, and we continue to go, well, who, who can do this? Who, who is this? Who is this he? And then the, the, we get to the final section. And once again, kind of everything changes. We 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 maintain a question and answer format, but who's talking and why is different. So verse 7 says this lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So wait wait a second. Gates don't have heads. In case you were wondering, that's true. Gates don't have heads. Um, so what are these gates? What are they supposed to be? We we have to remind ourselves again that there there's no temple yet. The tabernacle's there, but it doesn't have gates. It has curtains. It's a tent. And and we have to hearken back earlier to what we talked about. If the ark is entering a city, well, a city has gates. city has gates, and it has gatekeepers. Gatekeepers have heads. Lift up your heads, O gates. Commentators actually don't agree about all of this. Some people maybe think that the the the, the passages like extend your height, oh gates, kind of like a, a portcullis rising up. Those are those for those that don't know what a portcullis is, it's like that thing that you see in like medieval movies that like come down and then rises up and it's kind of a cage spiky thing. Problem though, Romans invented those eight hundred years after David. So probably not that, but it could be like a lintel. A lintel is a horizontal board that goes over a giant opening. So it wouldn't allow for things like horses, chariots, ox carts, things like that to come in. Could be that. We don't know. Doesn't say. But it also calls them doors in the next part of the verse. It says, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. So obviously we're getting into something sort of poetic here, but it's got to have a root in actual Israel's life, Israel's meaning. So, So what's going on here? Well, if David is at the gate of the city, and he says, lift up your heads, O gates. It has to be directed at the gatekeepers. There, there is some sort of metonymy here. So the, so a metonym is just like when you call the business executive a suit, right? Like you're like, hey, all the suits are here. Uh, you, you know what that means. It's the guys in the suits that are making the decision. So lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads, gatekeepers. Open your yourselves, you gates. So it could go either way. We don't know which way it's flowing, but it's one of those things. So you're either personifying the gates completely or you're talking to the gatekeepers who are in charge of opening the gates. Either way, that's that's what we're looking at here. Lift up your heads, oh, you gates. If somebody walked up to that gatekeeper, he would know what they meant, though they might go, huh? And this is a psalm. It's a song, right? So so poetic license is is going to be there. We're going to see things like that. And as far as ancient doors go, well, we have to think about that. Jerusalem's a relatively new settlement at this point. So how ancient would its gates be? How ancient would the doors be? And one common explanation for that is that the word ancient can also be translated as eternal or everlasting. The idea being that David's kingdom was promised to have no end. We know that from the next chapter. Second Samuel verses 7, I mean, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, this is God to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So whatever, whatever the case, we, we receive our answer from the gates, or gatekeepers, in the following verse. Who is this king of glory? They answer with a question. So they're, they're made a demand, lift up your, your heads, O gates. And then they say, who is the king of glory? Who is this king of glory? But then they answer their own question. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This is why commentators think that this had to have a liturgical function. People are personifying the gatekeepers and there's some sort of leader call and response thing, which you guys know I love. And, 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 we, and we see that here. We see that on display. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. It's military imagery here. Thinking of David, referring uh, to God as the one uh, who would triumph over Goliath clearly comes to mind. This is earlier in David's career, 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. He's speaking to Goliath here. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That is the faith of David. That is the kind of worship that David is cultivating in Israel. The battle is the Lord's. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. So we get to to verse 9, and it is repetition with just a subtle shift. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, instead of be lifted up. uh, It says, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Don't you hate it when worship songs just repeat the same lines over and over again? Me too. So, so the assembly or, or the processional outside the gate is asking again for entry on behalf of the king of glory. And then more repetition, verse 10, who is this king of glory? But then they answer differently, and they say, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. The gatekeepers answer again, And this time, it's definitive. We know who the King of Glory is. It's the Lord of Hosts. That's the King of Glory. We get Selah, guitar solo. Maybe. We don't know. Could be something else. Probably musical direction, though. So, guitar solo is totally okay. So, when we encounter a text like this, a couple things happen. One, we we have to look at who wrote it, which we did. And we have to look at when they wrote it. And, and, and try and discern the author's original intent, which we did. In a psalm like this, we are clearly able to pin down the author right away. It tells us it's David. And, and you can at least discern a probable occasion and purpose. This Ark uh, coming into Jerusalem thing makes the most sense out of any other explanation that we could give. for trying to place it historically, which, which is difficult because the psalm doesn't do it for us. It doesn't say, and, and it was on this occasion that this was written, as it does with other psalms. So we have to, we have to think about it, but but that makes sense. But I don't know about you, but maybe you're, you're reading along in the Psalm, and it seems maybe to point to some more things than what we've just outlined. And this is the second thing that happens when we encounter a text like this in the Old Testament. We can't help but see Christ all throughout it. So what's a, what's an honest preacher to do? Preaching Christ in the Old Testament can be dicey. On the one hand, we are sometimes tempted to draw lines that aren't there, and that can get us into trouble. If we make everything about Christ when there are other truths to be learned, then we're we're not rightly dividing the word of truth. We're not doing things justice. But on the other hand, we can't help but know how a story ends. So it's impossible not to look back and see Christ in many places that perhaps even superintended the author's original meaning of a text. We see the apostles mentioned those texts all the time. And Psalm 24, I, I think, is one of those places. Particularly as we ask the question of verse 3 again in light of that context. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who is that but Jesus Christ? On the one hand, we can't miss David's call here towards holiness, and we'll come back to that when we talk about our application. David is definitely calling the people of Israel to be pure, to purify themselves, to be holy. We cannot ignore the original context of the psalm, and we will not ignore it. Because God desires those who worship him to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy. But can our hands ever truly be clean of our own doing, by our own doing? Romans 3:10 through 12 says as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together and they have become worthless no one does good not even one no it's Christ's cleansing that does it as as Brett read this morning in our in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 6 we were all terrible sinners But for Christ, who washed us by his blood, who gave us clean hands and a pure heart. The purity that we have comes from Christ Jesus alone. It's not anything we could do for ourselves. Such were some of you, but you were washed. So these messianic, meaning Messiah, these messianic implications of the psalm go even further if we we keep looking. In the final section, we approach that exchange of the assembly at the gate again. Uh, and, and here I'll let commentator W.S. Plummer say what is on my mind and maybe yours at this point, too, as, as you read it. We are compelled to seek a higher sense than any that should confine, confine the psalm to the arrival of the ark. The language of the prophet rises far above the solemn scenes witnessed on earth and once passes to the things shadowed forth. By the ark, the tabernacle, and the temple, all of which were figures of Christ and of heaven. The removal of the ark to Mount Zion was a faint shadow of the ascension of Christ, the King of glory, to receive whom the heavens opened their everlasting gates. Who is this King of glory? His name is Jesus. The messianic implications of these verses are just too strong to ignore. Yes, David was, of course, speaking of Yahweh, the great I Am when he wrote this song, but we know the one who said, before Abraham was, I am. His name is Jesus. He is the king of glory. The image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature, holding all things together. So, as we shift into application, you may have noticed I I called this sermon, Lift Up Your Heads. You may be wondering why, uh, as this is arguably one of the weirder poetic elements of the psalm. Presumably, if I, if this is about letting the king of glory in, lifting up your heads means lifting a metaphorical barrier so that God may enter. But there were too many ways that poetry played into my mind as I prepared for me to pass up the opportunity to turn it into a very simple application. So, number one, first... To those who here who may not know Christ, you may be wondering what all this talk of purity is about. But the fact is, we've all sinned against a holy God. We are marked by a stain that we can never clean ourselves. We can wash our hands all day long and it will not be blotted out. But Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. You may not think that that's necessary, or you may think that that's not true, or you may think that you don't deserve such a kindness. But lift up your heads. Open up your gates. Let the king of glory come in. Because he is the one that can ascend the hill and stand before God in your place. He is your advocate before a holy God who stands ready to declare your hands clean. So trust him this morning if you have not. Believe in him this morning that you might be saved. And number two, for for those that do believe, David's call for holiness is not something that we can ignore. We can't ignore the original meaning for this text. Purity is not something that we can achieve outside Christ. That is true, and this church will always affirm that. There's no getting in by our own merits. But the idea that we are purified only to continue in sin, unconvicted, unchanged, is not found at all in the Bible. In fact, such double-mindedness is completely incongruent with a life lived by faith in the Son of God. James, brother of Jesus, put it this way. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The spirit that's made to dwell in us means we're talking about Christians here. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James reminds us that the only way toward holiness is humility and even more grace. We're not doing it ourselves, but we're not not doing it. Sorry, English teachers. We are doing it. The Apostle Paul reminds his disciple Titus of this very truth in his letter and my favorite scripture in the Bible. And I would encourage everybody in here to commit it to memory. Titus 2, beginning verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior and God, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see how they're so intrinsically linked? The grace of God and people that are zealous to be holy, to do good work before him. Verse 11, the grace that appeared that brings salvation is what teaches us to be godly. James affirms it, Paul affirms it. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live and walk worthy. So wherever you are this morning, Psalm 24 is speaking to you. Lift up your heads, open your gates, and let the King of glory come in. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.